Take a seat, young Skywalker. you know you found yourself something good. Welcome back to another episode of The Barber's Chair. I'm your host, Austin Maddox, and today I just finished reading a book. And in fact, we're going to have the author on here in just uh, a few minutes. Uh, the book I read was called uh, Covenant Faithfulness, and it was Nathan Batty that wrote it. Uh, just came out here in the last uh, week or so, perhaps. Um... Uh, it was a very good book, and I, I'll tell you, honestly, uh, my habits with book reading aren't, aren't very good. It's, it's one of those things, you know, we all have that one maybe New Year's resolution that we say every single year, you know, I'm going to, you know, for some people, I'm going to lose weight, or I'm going to uh, start exercising more, I'm going to do this, that, or the other. Uh, one of mine is... I want to read more. This year, I want to dive into to books more. I want to be more consistent in how many books I'm reading. And it's one of those things I admittedly keep falling short on. Um, you know, I, I have the worst habit when it comes to book reading. And, and some of you out there is probably going to cringe when you hear it. But whenever I read a book, um, particularly when whenever I would go to the library or something... I would look at the book. By the way, you most books you can judge by their cover. Um, you can judge them enough to know whether or not you want to read them at least. Um, so first, obviously, you look at the cover, see if it's a book you might be interested in. If it does appear to be one of those kind of books, for me, I will look at the very uh, the back cover, which you know kind of gives you a rundown, gives you the basics of what the book's about. Then I'll turn to the front of the book. I'll see how the book starts. I'll read a middle page out of it. Then I'll read towards the end of the book. And then if my interest is still peaked at that point, if I still feel like this is a book that I want to spend time reading, then I will go ahead and read the book. That's not how you're supposed to read. I know that. But honestly, I, I can't help it. Um, that's, that's just how I, how I look at books. I enjoy reading a good book, but the problem is I, I have trouble finding books that I find good. Um, and again, that may be a, a very foreign concept to a whole lot of people, but um, yeah, there's, there, there's a select few books um, that I enjoy reading consistently, uh, or... I'm just not that big of a reader. And you know what? That's okay. If you're not a big reader, um, it's okay. It's important, obviously, that we know how to read. And uh, and like any good Christian should, we should always suggest that we are reading the Bible. And um, I'm, as a preacher, I'm in the Bible almost every day. So it's not that I don't read. It's not that I refuse to read. But... Uh, leisurely reading, I should say, is not my favorite thing to do. I'm a movie person. And if there's a movie based on a book, I would prefer to watch the movie, to be honest with you. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are, well, the book's always better. Well, here's the thing. You never know that if you don't read the book. If you don't read the book, the movie is the standard. So that's, that's why... <laughs> I always tell people that's why I stopped reading book, books because I enjoy the movies too much. So, uh, again, that's all in play. Reading is a good thing. Um, and if you've got a book series that you like, uh, more power to you. Uh, you might even let me know what those books are. Uh, again, I'll, I'll read the back cover. Uh, I'll check out the front cover, first, middle, and last page. And then I probably still won't read the book. But I'll at least know what the book is about. Um... I feel like Reader's Digest would be a book I, I would get into. Um, but aside from that, you know, as far as reading, 
Now, I do like to read uh, articles. I'll read all kinds of uh, articles online. Uh, favorite pastime of mine is Wikipedia. I'll go to Wikipedia, and um, y'all know this. Occasionally, you go in there, you're looking for one specific thing. You end up finding just this uh, this rabbit hole of subjects, and before you know it, you're uh, you're on a site talking about the you know the fall of the Prussian Empire, and you don't really know how you got there. Um, I, I do enjoy reading those type of things. I enjoy reading things that are educational, um, history. I, I love history. If I'm reading about history, um, I, I truly enjoy that. Uh, there, there are certain things, certain kinds of readings that that I really flock to. Uh, short things, short stories. That that is. Um, those those are the type of things. Um, not really big into magazines, but you know, if there's, you know, article about trucks or tractors or uh, sports in particular, that, that's my big thing. Um, technically, that's probably what I, aside from the Bible, that's probably what I read the most is is anything sports related, whether that's uh, primarily football. I'll, I'll just be frank. A little basketball here and there, a little college sports. Um, right now, because of a lack of sports, um it's pretty much anything regarding sports that that I'll be more than happy to dive into reading, um, but that's that's kind of kind of where I'm at right now. Um, at the same time, now books books I have read or have enjoyed reading, and I don't know if I'd go back and reread them again. Probably probably not. But I know growing up, one of my favorite book series to read was the Hardy Boys. I know there's a there's a lot of a lot of guys grew up reading the Hardy Boys, just like a lot of girls, I, I assume, grew up reading Nancy Drew or some other book series of that nature. So I read almost all of the Hardy Boys, if not all of them. Um, always love love a good mystery. Um, I do like a Western book every now and again. Haven't read one in a while, but uh, Louis L'Amour. It, it's hard to beat a good Louis L'Amour story, or a Zane Grey. Uh, I've read read a couple of Zane Grey books. Uh, again, westerns. If you're if you're into westerns, um, pretty much uh, the book starts and stops with Louis L'Amour. Um, Zane Grey is is a far far away second, but yeah, it's pretty much Louis L'Amour or nobody. So there's there's some books like that that I enjoy. I'm kind of looking around here in my office. See what other kind of books I have. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously biblical literature that I read from time to time. Uh, mostly, uh, I enjoy referencing biblical material, such as a commentary, uh, or if there's there's a specific passage in a book uh, on a particular topic that I'm studying on at the moment. Um, that might help. Uh, I, I use a lot of my books for, for cross-referencing, not that I don't read them or haven't read them. Um, there are a lot of books that I own that I haven't haven't got to yet. But um, there's uh, that, that's kind of how I look at, at biblical literature. And there's uh, people that have views, um, all kinds of views on biblical literature. To me, there's some of it that is better than others. There's some of it that is better written than others. Uh, there's a certain... It's almost a genre of writing when you get into biblical literature. Um, that is literature that is about the Bible, but not the Bible itself. And that genre is... Um, that theological, philosophical genre of writing uh, is very tedious to read through. For me personally, it's not enjoyable to read. Some people really enjoy reading that material, um, but me, for me, it's it's very tedious. It's very time consuming, so it's not something that I just enjoy. Uh, that's that's something that uh, I'm trying to make myself do more and more. 
um, push myself to read because uh, inevitably I always learn something. And um, there's a, there was a man that told me once uh, to read as much as possible. Uh, talking about bi- biblical literature, talking about you know different authors and authors you may disagree with, um, but to read as much as possible because that helps you form formulate your thoughts, your beliefs, how you approach things. Um, it also helps you understand what some of the opposite arguments are. That way you know what to focus on, what to combat, and inevitably, if you're hearing the opposite side of something, it always helps. It helps to hear things that you may disagree with. That's something that our culture has gotten way far away from. They think, there's many people that think today that want to put a ban on speech that they deem not worthy to be spoken, that they think uh, that contradicts their worldview, that contradicts their set of morals that they have created for themselves. There's lots of people today that want to restrict um, speech, that want to restrict the exchange of ideas. And exchange of ideas is always a good thing, but it's always a good thing if people are honest with themselves. That's when it's good. When exchange of ideas becomes not good, when it becomes something that's very toxic, very unpleasant, is when you have two people that aren't aren't honest with themselves, uh, that aren't really honest in their beliefs, but they hold on to it out of pride or whatever the case might be, and they will not relent, they will not see the other side, and unfortunately, they don't even hear the other side. They want their words and their ideas to be so uh, important. They want their words to be heard more than anything else. And sadly, today we're in a place where people value being heard more than they value hearing the truth. And that's a very unfortunate place to be in. It's a very sad place to be in. And it's not one that I suggest in the least. Uh, I, I do appreciate hearing what other people say, knowing, first and foremost, what the Bible says. And that's where you have to start. You have to start with the truth. And then, when people have differing ideas on the Bible, then you have to do a lot more of uh, investigative learning. You have to figure out exactly what it is that you believe and why you believe it. And there's lots of people that don't know how to defend what they believe or why they believe it. Maybe it's because they've never heard an argument, pardon me, an argument that contradicts what they believe. Part of it may be because uh, they just... um, uh, they don't want to look at it any further. That's that's what they believe, and they're, they're uh, content with what they believe. Contentedness in knowledge is, frankly, an unchristian idea. Being content with what you know and not growing. In fact, we're told, uh, it's in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, if I remember correctly, that we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not growing in knowledge, then, frankly, that's an anti-Christian sentiment. We have to be willing to grow and to hear opposing viewpoints so that we can know what the truth is. And if we value the truth more than anything else, that's where we'll be our best that's where we will be what the Lord wants us to be. That's what, um, uh, talking about you know, the book of Acts, the, uh, they were, uh, oh, I'm forgetting, I shouldn't forget this, but um, Berea, yeah, there it is, there it is, it took me a second. 
Uh, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The Thessalonicans, uh, when they heard Paul speak, well, they just didn't like it. Didn't jive with what they knew and what they understood. Uh, so they threw him out of the city. The Bereans, when they heard, now, granted, it was different than what they were used to, but where did they go? What did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. There's Bandit. Say hi, Bandit. I believe he heard a noise. Noises are evil, by the way, uh, in Bandit's eyes, in case you didn't know. So that's my two cents on reading and uh, different books to read about or to read on. And, and never be afraid to, to read things that may be contradictory, may be a little bit different than what you're used to. Here in a few moments, we're going to have Nathan Batty on. He's going to talk a little bit about his brand new book, and uh, we look forward to that. So stay tuned. Joining us today is Nathan Batty, evangelist at the Rockville Road Church of Christ and author of a brand new book. How are you doing tonight, Nathan? Doing good, Austin. Good to be on tonight. Great. Uh, great to have you. Uh, you're also um, uh, doing your own podcast, is that correct? Yeah, I do the Been There, Read That podcast where I talk about books in general. I review different books, give reading suggestions, reading tips, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of all things books. Awesome, awesome. Um, uh, how has that been going? I, I'm, I'm new to this whole podcast game, so so I'm interested to uh, to hear about, you know, how others' podcasts are going. Well, to be honest, this year has been kind of off and on because of writing my book, because of mm -hmm. all that's been going on. It's been kind of a chaotic last two to three months for me right and so i haven't been super uh, consistent with posting and giving new episodes which is not good you want to have a, a weekly or at least a, a set time when everybody knows that something's coming out new and i haven't been really good about that so i've, I've had to make a lot of apologies to folks but um <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I've enjoyed. It's been more of a hobby thing. So sure. I suppose if you and I were doing this for money, make <laughs> a difference. But since, right, right. Since I'm paying for it, I just kind of do it when I get to. So that's right. Well, that's that's you know the beauty of it, but also I guess the downfall of it. You know, there's yeah. a, there's not that driving force. You know, but yeah. I mean, let's face it. I I don't think. I don't know. You might be, but I know I'll never be Joe Rogan. You know, and you know, right. sell mine to. Uh, what was it, Spotify for $10 million or something of that nature? Yeah. yeah. Right. But it is cool. You get to talking to people, and you find out who's listening to your podcast that yeah. you had no idea. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's rather surprising people. Like my uncle told me he listened to a few episodes of mine, uh -huh. which I didn't even know that he knew what a podcast was. <laughs> and I've had some young girls, and I say young girls like late teens, uh -huh. who listen, I think, I'm kind of surprised this because you know I'm just discussing theological books and stuff, and so right. I don't I don't think about that being a target audience, but they're listening. And just this week, I had a, a buddy who ordered a copy of my book, and he says, "Hey, he says I hope this don't have any bones," which I, I talk about chicken and bones in books all the time. So uh -huh. obviously, he'd been listening. Kind of surprised me. It's kind of cool. Yeah. You never know where it's going or who's hearing it. Yeah, ah, that's awesome. Uh, well, let's talk about your book. Um, yep. Just. Got it out, what, here in the last two weeks, I guess? It's been out for uh, for purchase? Yeah. Right, it's been, uh, since last Monday, so almost two weeks now. Excellent. And uh, the title of the book is Covenant Faithfulness. Uh, uh, walk us through what, what that title is is describing, a little bit about your book, without giving sure. away too much, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So Covenant Faithfulness is derived from the Hebrew word hesed, which is used... Uh, quite frequently in the Old Testament, it's a very complex and broad word. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's rendered mercy a lot of times, but it's always used within a covenant context, thus the word covenant. Mm-hmm. And it's better rendered a lot of places as covenant loyalty or covenant faithfulness, which is uh, the specific meaning in the book of Hosea. And mm-hmm. since the, the book as a whole centers around an exposition of Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, and kind of the central focus of that passage is in verse 7 where the Lord quotes Hosea 6, 6. It says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's Hosea uses the word has said in that passage to mean covenant faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so I have a discussion of covenant. What's covenant faithfulness? Right. Um, I actually, uh, I just finished the book today. I was, I was proud of myself for, uh, for reading the, you know, reading a book. You know, it's, um, I was describing earlier or thinking to myself that, you know, it's, uh, for me, it's one of those things, uh, you know, I constantly make, that's that new year's resolution. You always say that you're going to, going to do, but it never, never materializes for me. It's always reading more. So, uh, very good read. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. I I agreed with your position uh, on it already, but uh, it did help me. There was a couple things that um, that changed my mind on, uh, particularly when you're talking about uh, David and the eating of the showbread. Right. Um, I had heard uh, the different arguments uh, that you had put in your book. Uh, but, mm-hmm. um, the one that you take, which is that it was a lawful thing for him to do, um, to me makes absolutely the most sense. So I really yeah. appreciated your explanation on that. Thanks. I, you know, in doing all this study and research for it, that was one of the parts of, of my studies that changed my position. Mm-hmm. I had previously held the position that uh, David had received special permission through Ahimelech, the high priest, receiving direct revelation from God. Mm-hmm. And that was my position going into to re-looking at everything, re-studying everything. And one of the things I realized as I was going through it was um, I had not taken into account the discussion that breaks out between Ahimelech and David regarding holiness. Right. And most all the positions don't take that into account. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that the conversation that they have that they use to justify David receiving and eating the showbread with his men is something that's entirely ignored. I've ignored it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I freely confess I, I changed my position on that. I think it's the strongest uh, position. And I, I try to be fair and interact with, uh, I think it's four other positions and mm-hmm. to show kind of the strengths and weaknesses of it. But ultimately, I believe it's a situation where the law self-regulated itself. Right. And uh, not only that, but that seems to be a consistent thing throughout the scriptures also. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I uh, kept running through my brain, you know, people talk about exceptions to the rule, right? Right. And for something to be an exception, that means that it, it suspends the rule temporarily. But if you talk about things being exceptions, when the Bible already states that that's part of what you're supposed to do, that's that's not really an exception, is it? That's right. That's right. And so the idea that God gave a special exception, allowing David to eat the showbread, mm-hmm. when you take that forward into Matthew 12, people often arrive at the position that the disciples of Jesus had sinned, but Jesus received special revelation Mm-hmm. to give them an exception for what they had done. Right. And the problem with that is the Pharisees who he's combating, they don't recognize his authority, and they would not have accepted that as an exception. They would have just said, you violated the Sabbath, mm-hmm. which they, I mean, that, that's what the position is confessing. Okay, you violated right. the Sabbath. You're condemned for having done that. And Jesus has gone way out of his way to say, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Right. So I see that's being very problematic. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure, and you know, ultimately, I don't, I don't know that it changed the Pharisees' minds, you know, one way or another. But uh, particularly, uh, is that verse fourteen where it's where it says the Pharisees start plotting against him yes. at that? Mo- okay, yeah, but um, but still, yeah, they're, they're um, 
they're hypocrites. Right. I mean, that's one of the common phrases used in Matthew 23 to describe them. Mm-hmm. They, they just refuse to accept it and receive it. Now, they can't answer the argument. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of his arguments he sets forth. But they, that doesn't keep them from getting angry. Right. And that's not unique to them. That's, that's how we all respond a lot of times. We, mm-hmm. um, if we're not going to be fair and honest with things, we can get angry. Right. Yeah, and uh, honesty is a rare feature. I've, uh, you know, in, in all of us, not just, you know, we, we like to talk about, you know, there's people out there, you know, in the ether somewhere that are, you know, they're just not honest with themselves. But it's it's one of those things we have to individually look at. Am I being honest with myself about this or am I just sticking to what I've always been because, you know? Right. So... Right. That's the only way we keep growing is if, you know, we're honest. Honesty is the best right. policy, right? Yep. It's not, it's not easy to give up positions you've held for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, part of why I changed my position on Dave and Showbread, I, I did it somewhat reluctantly at first. Um, mm-hmm. But I presented the five positions is here are the five options and here's kind of what I'm leaning toward. Yeah. But as I began to have discussions with brethren, I, I sent, uh, you know, different version of man, manuscripts to different preachers and to, uh, congregational teachers. And I was getting feedback mm-hmm. and through some of the discussion, it helped clarify in my own mind where some of the hangups were, where the strengths and the weaknesses were coming, kind of crystallized the position for me. Yeah. And at the end, uh, I just felt like I had to give up my former position on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm kind of at this, uh, looking at it the same way you were. Um, <laughs> initially, that was my approach. That it was a special exception to the rule given by the Lord because of um, that's in First Samuel twenty two, right? That right. Um, yeah, it talks about Ahimelech receiving the. Uh, yeah, Doeg's the one that he he's speaking right. to Saul, and he accuses Ahimelech of having and um, interceded for David on mm-hmm. on David's behalf before God. Right. And I think ultimately the problem with that is that one's not what's recorded in the narrative between David and Ahimelech. Number two, it's set forward by Doeg, mm-hmm. who later David will describe in Psalm fifty-two as a deceitful man in this particular situation. Right. And that's that paired with I think it's Deuteron, um, excuse me First Samuel twenty two verse fifteen mm-hmm. where Ahimelech is just out and out denying that he knew anything about what David was doing or that he interceded for him. Right. So you have this question: Who are you going to believe, Doeg or Ahimelech? Mm-hmm. And I'll go with Ahimelech. He seems to be the honest guy. He's not been called a deceitful character by mm-hmm. an inspired man. So yeah, that. That makes it very difficult to uh, to start basing any any beliefs off of a deceitful person. I, I hadn't uh, again one of those things I hadn't no. taken into consideration. So I really really I appreciate that. Either so. Yeah, that was I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the whole book, um, but um, your part towards the end, you were talking a little bit about Pandora's box. Uh, that concept uh, that was yep. based off of. Uh, a Joe Heisel sermon? That's correct. At the Sulphur meeting. I don't know how many years ago that was. It's probably uh, probably six to eight years back now. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say one thing before I talk about Pandora's box. I'm convicted about my position on David and the showbread. Mm-hmm. But whether somebody ultimately agreed with my position or not on that, Mm-hmm. I think the discussion of the Hosea 6-6 passage is kind of the central focal point of the book, the most important yes. part. Yes. And so I, I don't want to miss that, but um, I, I think, obviously, I wrote it. I think <laughs> I'm right on uh, First Samuel 21, Dave and the Showbread. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a difficult passage. I right. recognize that for folks. But ultimately... In our application in the current pandemic situation, I think the most important material is the Hosea 6 6 passage. Yes. And how we interpret that um, has ramifications beyond our current situation right now. Yes. 
Um, we can't argue situational ethics out of the passage. Mm -mm. Um, and depending on what we do with it, I'll just leave it that way. Depending on what we do with it, we we're opening ourselves up for challenges down the road. That's what I talk about in the Pandora's box chap, uh, chapter Yes, is where do we go from here? And that's really what I want people to think about mm -hmm. is one, I think, I wanted to provide commentary on Hosea 6-6 and David the Showbread that would be beneficial beyond our current situation. I really hope this pandemic thing blows over Same. soon, <laughs> sooner rather than later. Uh -huh. I, it's been a very difficult situation for everybody involved. I have the utmost uh, sympathy and concern for all of my brethren. Yes. And um, it, we're having to make very difficult situations on the battlefield, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And maybe looking back, we'll look at things differently. And that's what I'm trying to get people to do. I think right now, emotions are extremely heightened. Yes. And we're focused on what's at hand, and I can understand that. But we have to we have to consider the argumentation that we're making. Is it biblical? Mm -hmm. And two, if it's not biblical, what are the consequences for, for where this is going from here? Right. And so um, I've tried to do that, uh, I hope— in a a kind manner, mm -hmm. but there are some some big concerns with the implications it has in the future for arguing different positions. Absolutely, and one of the, one of the things when when all of this started that kept coming to my mind was that whatever we do from here sets a precedence for how oh, yeah. how we do things in the future. That's right. So, so I guess. Um, uh, you know, another question is, do you think that the the contents of this book, I don't think they are, but uh, do you see them applying just to, do you think we'll ever see a situation like this again? I definitely think we could. Um, uh, they're saying that the coronavirus is here to stay. Yeah. You know, we, may, we may experience this again this fall or mm -hmm. this winter. I hope that's not the case. Right. Um, but you know, things like this have arisen from time to time. And it's, some it's handled differently by the government at different periods, and so it's had a different reaction amongst people. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But think about the Spanish flu. Right. Um, I remember when the pandemic was first beginning for us here a couple months ago, uh, there was a good bit of talk amongst brethren about the Spanish flu, and brethren were going back to old gospel advocate articles and looking at the OPA and all, all different kinds of journals mm -hmm. and trying to find out what, how did the church react during the Spanish flu? Yeah. And that's what people are going to be doing about this current situation. Exactly. There's a brother down in San Angelo, Texas, uh, who he sent out uh, an email kind of all across the brotherhood. He wanted to just gather sermons that were audio recorded. Mm-hmm the first two or three Sundays when all this went down because mm -hmm. to just kind of preserve it for historical sake. Right. He didn't have any type of agenda. He was just saying, you know, for historical sake, we're going to look back on this, you know, 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see how we viewed it. Yeah. Um, I don't like, I don't like taking pictures during church. <laughs> I was very tempted on what would have been called Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, taking a picture where a lot of our members were wearing masks as recommended by the governor. Yeah. Uh, just because it would be a unique photo. Mm -hmm. And to look back on this, you know, 50 years, or maybe my great-great-grandkids would find that picture and see, because we're living out history right now. I don't right. kind of lose sight of that in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do that. Uh, some parts of me regret it, and parts of me, I, I don't just don't like doing that during service. But anyway, yeah, um, it will be interesting to see how this is viewed, you know, five years from now, let alone a hundred years from now. Uh, exactly. I was, uh, jokingly, I was talking to some people. I was thinking about, you know, I mean, we know they're going to make a movie about it. Mm -hmm. But you know, what kind of movie are they going to make about you know, the COVID-19 pandemic? And somebody suggested, well, it's going to be about the toilet paper shortage. <laughs> it, it'll it's probably be a horror movie there's yeah it's one of those things that go a million different directions yeah and um you know i 
I feel like, at least in the area where I am, mm-hmm. things have gone about as smoothly as they could have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been pretty calm. Uh, the brethren here in Indianapolis have worked really good working together mm-hmm. and getting through this. It's been it's gone as well as it could have. I know yeah. in other situations, it's been very traumatic. It's brought a lot of, of turmoil and challenges and mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I really feel for my brother and pray for my brother in the situations that they're facing. So, you know, even within the same country, it's it affects and is handled very differently from place to place. And yes. um, I've been very blessed through this period mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to think about the brotherhood at large and uh, offer up a lot of prayer, a lot of concern going out. Absolutely. And I'm um, really excited about your book, and I think that this is um, – it's going to be a unifying thing. Uh, hopefully, like you said, once, you know, maybe this does come back again. And mm-hmm. now, you know, the first the first wave was so unique, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that none of us had ever experienced before. Now we kind of have a feel for it, know what to expect. And mm-hmm. uh, with more information out there, it it ultimately yeah. will be better for, for many, many people. So really, so. really appreciate your book. Uh, in doing that. Now, Thanks. I, not everybody's going to agree sure. with what I've written, but I hope that we can have a cordial conversation about it. Yes. Um, I know that won't always be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already gotten some feedback to indicate otherwise, but <laughs> I really do hope, by and large, we can have a civilized uh, disagreement and work towards uh, unification. Um, Unity comes through a presentation of truth, not through presentation of error. And as I wrote in the book, as I've said on my podcast, if what I've written is true, then take it and use it. If it's not, then oppose it. And let's try to work through this. Amen to that. Now, now this is going to be a little bit of a hard shift. Uh, One of the unfortunate um, casualties of this pandemic has been the absence of sports. Yes, Now, I know you're uh, a baseball fan, and I've been accused uh, on this podcast of not really giving baseball uh, its its full due. So, so why do you like baseball? It's the greatest sport on earth. I mean, there's there's not really much more of a reason than that. Um, that's debatable but but okay (laughs) i mean i know there's other opinions out there they're just wrong so um sure sure uh, okay since uh i was four Uh or so we we moved to georgia when i was about three and about four or five somewhere in there started keeping up with the braves and the braves had their big run through the 90s Mm -hmm. and still to this day i'm a diehard braves fan i lived in texas uh, for 10 years, nine years, and I've been up here in Indiana for a couple of years, and I'm still a Braves fan, always will be. Yep. But it is tough. I, I'm telling you, if there were baseball going on right now, everybody would be calmer. They'd be more <laughs> relaxed. They'd have their mind off of things. We wouldn't be fighting. It, it, life would just be better. Well, it is America's uh, pastime for a reason, right? Yes. yes. Yep. And nobody would be complaining about nine uh, inning games that last four hours. They'd be fine with that because what else are they going to do? They're, they're tired of binging on Netflix. Right, right. So, uh, Do you think that there will be a season? I don't know. I'm, I'm tentatively optimistic, but the, the problem is the Players Association and the owners have been at each other for years now yeah Uh, we have a collective bargaining agreement that's coming up and i I think it's two years and that was already going to be a hostile situation Uh, many people were already anticipating a labor strike at that point Mm -hmm. and this has kind of ramped up everything in advance um and everybody's throwing shade each way out they say all the the owners agree well the owners have a bunch of money invested they're gonna lose two billion dollars this year right everybody says well the the players agree. Well, the players uh, signed a contract, and they're expecting to get paid on their contract. Uh-huh. And uh, the owners back in March indicated they were going to uh, 
recognized the contracts that they'd made at a prorated amount. Mm-hmm. And now they're going back on that and saying, well, we didn't realize there weren't going to be people in the stands. So you got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> you had to realize it's, it's more than likely you're not going to have people for at least a portion of the season, if not the whole season. I right. mean, you're debating whether there's even going to be a season. <laughs> you have to understand that that's a possibility. And so mm-hmm. when, for instance, the Dodgers a couple years ago, they signed a TV deal that was worth, I want to say, like $2.7 billion. Hmm. is an absurd amount of money. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of money in the sport. Oh, yeah. I, I think owners could get by with paying prorated salaries for the year and uh, they could use some of the earnings from last year and they'll use some of the ones from next year mm-hmm. and turn out okay with this but um, it is a money grab right now and things aren't looking real good about that and the stalemate that might have been coming in two years might just kept come early yeah uh, I'll I... be disappointed uh, sure I'm not going to be a person that says, oh, I'm never going to watch baseball again because it's the greatest sport, so I'll keep watching it. But it is going to be tough, mm-hmm. especially for me because my Braves were primed this year to have a good run. Okay. And um, be at, you know, the fighting for the top spot in the division. I'm not going to say they would have won it. I think they would have, but they're going to be good this year. And to take that whole season away is going to be hard if it happens but even if they do play with a modified schedule they're proposing all kinds of crazy things it'll be interesting just kind of see how it all falls out if in fact it does come together right um now now honestly i am i'm about as illiterate of baseball as as a person can get um uh who else is in the braves division that they would be concerned about well, normally you would have the Phillies, the Mets, um, the Nationals, and then the Marlins. Nobody's really concerned about the Marlins, but right. the, probably the biggest opponents would be, uh, I don't know, the Phillies, Mets, and Nationals, all three would be tough, especially in a shortened season where you hopefully wouldn't have as much injury. Mm-hmm. Um you know, when you're talking typically 162 games, that's a grind. And whoever has the most depth in their system has mm-hmm. a much better chance of winning out, which is definitely the Braves, in my opinion. We've got more pitching depth than anybody. But if you shorten that to half or even less, that takes away a big advantage that we did have. Right. And But, you know, besides that, they're talking about, I mean, I've seen proposals where those teams wouldn't even be in our division. We would be playing in a division with, like, the Yankees and um, everybody from the East Coast, which would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've talked about splitting people up between Florida and Arizona in their spring training groups. And so whoever you are closest to in your spring training facility, that'd be who you're playing with. Okay. Um, there's just tons of different options, and who knows who yep. knows what will shake out. But it'll be kind of one of those things, too. If, if say, your team does win the World Series this year, if they have one and your team wins, there's always going to be that conversation. Mm-hmm. Were they the best team? Because this is such a weird year and everything was goofy. Right. Is this a legitimate victory? And if, if my team wins, it's legit. Now, if somebody <laughs> else's team wins that I really hate, I don't know. I may, I may throw some shade on it. But. There will be an asterisk next to the yeah, <laughs> next right. to the title. I'll protest. Now, now the other side of this uh, that I've heard in in some of the sports commentaries, you know, that I've read and listened to, that's that's where I'm at sports wise. I'm actually looking up okay. baseball stuff. So, Dang it. Uh, uh, they were talking about the fact that it may make the sport more exciting uh, as far as more stakes on the line with a shortened season. Yeah. Yeah, it's all a matter of perspective. If you like traditionalism versus weirdness. <laughs> so they're going to, in all likelihood, if they have a season, it'll be a universal DH. So National League and American League both have a DH hitter, mm-hmm. which to me gives a little bit of advantage to the American League teams because they built their team with that in mind, mm-hmm. whereas National League teams are going to have to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hate about that, I-, I can understand this season, but 
they're pushing to bring the universal DH in anyway, so this will be the beginning of the end, which mm-hmm. is kind of sad. I've always liked the National League style of play where the pitcher hits, but yeah. anyway, so that, that'll be different. There probably will be more offense. Uh, the pitchers will have a shortened spring training, so they won't be able to ramp up and be fully ready to go like normal. You're going to have a bigger roster for your team. And then there's, they're, I don't know, they're proposing like a seven-team playoff system per division, I mean per league. Okay. So you'd have, a, I think, a potential 14 teams, something like that. And mm-hmm. it's going to be more chaos, which a lot of people like. But to me, chaos doesn't speak to showing the best team. It mm-hmm. just speaks to who gets hottest in the moment. Yeah. So, again, I like a traditional season with 162 games where one team separates itself from the pack and then a smaller group of people in the playoffs because they've each actually earned their spot. And mm-hmm. you do truly have the best teams, not just you know a couple teams that are playing 500 ball and they happen to get hot and lucky at the end and win everything. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I can see that from, well... I, I have to relate everything to football because that's that's what I know and what I love. But you know if I, I can definitely see you know if if a football season was shortened to eight games instead of sixteen, that would I mean there's been so many teams that you know well the Colts last year were like five and two, six and two at the halfway mark and then they went seven and nine. So yeah, I can. I can see that translating the same way into baseball. That that wouldn't be pleasant for anybody. Yeah, if you had a team that went like fourteen and one or fourteen and two, mm-hmm. and they're playing a team that went what, like seven and seven or yeah. seven and eight, and they end up getting beat on a fluke, you know that's that's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. But in a shortened season, it is what it is. Yeah, it's it's better than no sports at all. I'm. Uh, I'm honestly really hoping uh, football gets back into swing because I uh, went ahead and purchased some tickets for a couple of... Uh... I heard this. <laughs> You've heard this? Yeah. Uh, uh, has my brother-in-law told you our, our ingenious plan? Yeah, your sister told me a little bit of it. Ahaha, uh-huh, yes. So, yeah. Hopefully, yeah, uh, I've never been to Philadelphia, so if, okay. if it all works out, then... Uh, yeah, that, that'll be a, a very fun event. I hope it does for you. I bought tickets for me and my brother to go to opening day in Atlanta for the Braves, be their home opener. Oh, and we're yeah. going to meet up with uh, several guys like Carter Culbertson, Landon Hughes, uh-huh. Austin Smith, several guys, and go. I was super pumped about it. I get to go to their brand-new stadium for the first time, mm-hmm. and then it got canceled. Oh. And we didn't even get, like, a cash refund, I think. StubHub gave us credit for it, so... Oh, um, oh that's not cool. Anyway, yeah, you know, even if baseball does start back this year, the likelihood of getting to actually sit in the stadium and watch it slim to none, so mm-hmm. I guess here's the next year. <laughs> uh, I do hate that for you. From sports fan to sports fan. with you. Huh? I hope that doesn't happen for you. Well, well thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's terrible. Um... How do you feel about this whole, you know, no fans in the stands concept? Well, of like the 67-page document that the owners presented to the Players Association, that's the least weird thing that they're proposing. Yeah. Uh, The safety protocol for everything is, it's over the top, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting, there's pretty cool historical photos from the Spanish flu, where the batter, the catcher, the umpire are all wearing uh, breathing masks, and everybody Ooh. in the stands is too. Huh. And at that time, you know, the economy went on, sports went on, right. everything went on, and you know, I'm I'm concerned about health stuff. Sure. But I'm also more or less in in the position of let people make a choice about things. Mm -hmm. Um, If they make a dumb choice or you want to call their choice a dumb choice, that's, you know, that's fine. But people should get to make the choice that they they want to make in things. And um, I I don't know. There's there's so much that changes from day to day. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know 
what all is going on right now. Yeah, that's that is the truth. It's it's hard to, and that's part of what makes it unique. It's uh, the outcome has changed so many times over the last yeah. couple of months that, um, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. it makes it difficult. It does, and um, I've you know for the most part I've just kind of stayed out of that whole conversation with folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't talk politics with with brethren or people in the world. Mm-hmm. I try to talk talk Bible with them. We're never going to agree on politics. We're never going to agree on. Uh, health code stuff right. um, though I may differ with my brethren on health or polit- political stuff I can respect where they're coming from sure and if if my brother is more concerned about this situation than I am I can respect that it's a, it's a legitimate real thing yeah and um you know I I don't want to wear a face mask around town stuff but if the government mandated we had to do that I'd wear one I'm sure. not gonna protest that. Just try to get along as best we can with everybody. But I don't. I don't want to. I don't like the idea of uh, promoting fear, no. which I feel like is happening a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm all for complying with the government, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not. I'm not really on board with uh, projecting fear. So right. Yeah. Um, well, I. I think you had a, that was towards the end of your book, uh, you were talking a little bit about that, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, that's the thing that I think about, I'll just kind of leave it on this note, but as Christians, we do have a hope mm-hmm. beyond this life. That's right. And of all people in the midst of this pandemic, I feel like we should be the calmest and have, have the best resolution outlook on things because, one, we know who carries the day ultimately mm-hmm. and uh we're living a clean life mm-hmm. that prepares us for moments like this more than a lot of people in the world mm-hmm. and we also have a spiritually clean life which regardless of how our physical health is we should be the most prepared people to face difficult times and i think it's really important that we we demonstrate that to people we carry ourselves in such a way that brings calmness and peace into difficult situations rather than heightening uh, the intensity of the fear. That's that's I, I really I have a podcast episode I did on some of this called Fear is Our Greatest Enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still stand by that. I did that a month and a half or so ago, but I think a challenge for us is overcoming the fear that has consumed our world. Yeah. And faith and fear don't mix in that way we have a fear of god right but when we're talking about from an earthly perspective we have to have a faith that's grounded in god's word that allows us to see the other side Mm -hmm. of the equation exactly one of the um uh this has been i don't know probably three or four weeks ago um studying on a lesson about fear and it's astonishing how often the bible discourages fear do not be afraid fear not um one of the verses that just hit me between the eyes was over there in in first john chapter four i believe it's verse 18 and it says perfect love cast out fear and you know like like you said christians should try to exemplify people who are calm and collected because of the hope that we have but um Whenever I feel like whenever we are struggling with fear, it's not the fear that we need to take a look at, but where our relationship is with God. Because if that's yeah. if that's where it's it needs to be, then everything else yeah. should just fall into place. Yeah, that's true. Um, I read a book I've I've thought a lot about this year. Mm-hmm. It's called When Peop When Men Are Big and God Is Small, mm. and. It's, a, it's one of those books that after you've read 100 pages, you get the point of the author, and there's not necessarily a reason to read the other 100. Uh-huh. Um, but the first 100 is worth it, and he's just saying whenever we start getting anxiety about uh, men, what men think about us, rulings that are coming down from the government that regard the church, um, 
we have to put everything back into perspective. Yes. And the only one who deserves f- fear and that it's healthy to have a fear of is God. Mm-hmm. And when you allow men to step in that position, you've lost sight of who God is. Yeah. And you're raising you're raising people or things to levels that uh, were, that were never intended to be there. They're competing with God. Okay. I thought that was a helpful perspective, and um, I have to think about that from time to time. Mm-hmm. I can get I can get stressed out like anybody. I can have anxiety. Sure. And sometimes you gotta take a deep breath, take a step back, and put everything back in perspective, and try mm-hmm. to maintain proper perspective that's that's a challenge sometimes mm-hmm. but i think that's something that we could uh, focus on i think that's one reason why the assembly is there designed by god and we're commanded not to forsake it mm-hmm. is so that we can build one another up unto love and good works that's right and that's it's one of the big challenges of this pandemic is um, because of a lot of the governmental mandates and stuff we haven't been together as the body as mm-hmm. much as we typically are and one, it feels weird, but two, you miss out on a lot of being around your brethren all the time. Yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, my main hope of things getting back to normal, whatever that is now, is having brethren back around in your life all the time. And things I think about is if the pandemic hasn't changed in any way, how many people you've had over to your house? Mm-hmm then something's wrong. You need to get that fixed while all this is up. That's a fantastic this, point. This, this should have radically changed hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a question, yeah. should we have continued on with hospitality as normal? Uh, maybe so. There could be an argument for that, but mm-hmm. um, if, if the right thing to do is to not have people over and stay sheltered or whatever... Mm-hmm. I hope that that was weird mm-hmm. for folks and abnormal and that it's made us more appreciative of hospitality and getting to be with our brethren. Mm-hmm. And more anxious, furthermore, to get back to having yep. hospitality. Yep. Not just being, not accepting where we are now as the new normal, but understanding, yeah, we yep. we got to have people in our house. We got to yep. show that hospitality. I appreciate it. That's, that's an angle I have not thought of, but I really appreciate that. If you want a congregation to grow, uh, you need to have the congregation at different times sit around your dinner table. That's where we have mm-hmm. some of our best Bible conversations. That's where we get to know each other. And if you take that out of the equation, it's going to drastically affect the congregation as a whole. There's a reason hospitality is a requirement of elders. That's right. And... If you're taking that away from an elder, from a church leader, it's going to, it should drastically mm-hmm. impact the nature of the work. Right. And uh, hopefully we're, we're past that. We're at a point where we can start uh, being hospitable. And the thing I think about, especially with church members, is we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throughout most of this, I think most people, I won't say most people, we would think differently about having our family over than having our next door neighbor over. Yeah. Um, even for a time, I realized that wasn't that wasn't acceptable. But when things started to loosen up a little bit, most places people started having their family over again and getting back together as family. Mm-hmm. We have to, we have to think of our church family on the same level, if not even a higher level, than our physical family. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean. Because they are our family. I mean, you, you can't, we shouldn't, I, I mean, obviously we have to make the distinction so we know who we're talking about, but yeah. in, our, in our minds we shouldn't, there shouldn't be yeah. such a distinction between brothers and yeah. sisters in Christ and an earthly family mm-hmm. also. Yeah. 100% agree. Well, I tell you, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate uh, you agreeing to do this interview. Had a really great time. I appreciate you having me on, and um, appreciate you reading the book and your your thoughts on it. Um, if people want to pick up a copy, they can do it at my website, christianresearcher.com, 
And if you have questions about it, you can email me at christianresearcher at gmail.com, and I'll try to correspond with you. All right. Certainly encourage you to look at that book. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Welcome back uh, to the Barber's Chair, and real uh, today we're not going to have ourselves a final trim. Uh, it's one of those things I feel like we got it the first time. So, to conclude, just hope everybody has a good day. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you later.